Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Mythgard Academy. This is class number seven or something of the Return of the Shadow class. Um, <clears throat> the um, first thing that I would like to uh, uh, say about tonight's class is that I, I recognize we are like two weeks behind ish <laughs> or so on our on our required reading and I am not going to apologize um, it was really hard making out the the class plan for this because I wasn't really sure how much time I was going to end up wanting to take in each one but I've made the executive decision which I hope you won't mind so much uh, that I um, am going to take as much time as I feel it should take uh, to get through this. The the history of the Lord of the Rings is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, this is uh, this is really this is really this is really huge. And Brandon, you're right. Compared to Tuesday nights, we are still absolutely flying. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So I'm I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely. So you know, don't worry about keeping up with the reading. We're, we seem to be moving at about a chapter a week, no matter how short the chapters are. I had totally planned to uh, uh, to do because you know, looking just at page numbers, like this is a much shorter chapter. The the uh, you know the one with uh, Weathertop in it, the attack on Weathertop. Uh, so I was just going to do that, and then we're going to do the flight to the Ford chapter. It was going to be easy, right? Because they're both relatively short chapters compared to to some of the other stuff. Um, but of course, then this chapter happens, right? And I am reading this chapter now. And I also say, I've read these books before, um, but it's been a while. It's been several years since I've read them. And as I usually do when I'm teaching these classes, I always like to have this stuff fresh in my mind. So it's not only that I, um, I, you know, read them <laughs> before class, <laughs> which I know that's, that's pretty big of me. Right. But, um, uh, it's not just that, but I actually sort of hold off. Like I don't like to, to read ahead. So, um, I've, the chapters that we haven't done yet in the return of the shadow, I still, I haven't, I, I barely remember them because, uh, it's been a couple of years and I've deliberately held off on rereading them until we do the class. Um, because to me, for me, it really helps anyway to kind of keep my own head straight and make sure that we're doing the thing that I very often, um, the thing that, that I, that I very often try to, uh, um, uh, to, ask you guys to do, you know, that is not to think about what's going to come later on, right, but to kind of focus on where we are in the book so far. It's, I, it's easier for me to kind of keep my own head in that. Um, so anyway, that's one of the reasons why even though this is a book I've I've read before, I'm like, find, you know, discovering things and it's, it's, like a, it's like a voyage of discovery all the way through, which I, you know, I hope is kind of fun uh, to share with me. But anyway, so I, I so to me, you know, I've been saying all the way through, you know, that like we're waiting, I, you know, I've been, I'm waiting for the moment to come, right? You know, the moment that we've been discussing, the moment when the Lord of the Rings finally comes together with the Silmarillion stuff, you know, that when the firewall between the Hobbit and his mythology really comes down. And here we were, you know, I'm, re I'm reading the Weathertop thing and I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And then boom. And I was like, oh, <gasps> That's it! It happened! That's it! Oh my goodness! Uh, whew! Um, 
<laughs> Nelson says uh, Mythgard should, should sell T-shirts that say "We're behind," and I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be very that would be very typical. Um, yeah. So anyway, anyway, and, and yes, Yana, I am sorry. We're not. I had scored sort of scheduled sort of more open Q and A's. I'll we'll definitely I'll definitely try to do you know make sure at least we do one at the end. I hope. Um, uh, uh, because I know I've just been kind of <laughs> expanding into those into those class periods, but anyway, so I am super excited to dig in tonight because I think this is it. I think this is it. I think that tonight, and I was just saying this on uh, social media an hour ago. Um, I think that tonight we're going to read what I would argue is the most important paragraph Tolkien ever wrote, ever in his entire life. This is the turning point in his career. It's it's of course this is a turning point in Bingo's career. Uh, this what happens in this chapter, and not just what happens in this chapter, but the way the story is told. But I think more importantly, more profoundly, this is a turning point in Tolkien's career. This is it. The the, the magic happens tonight. Oh my gosh, this is so awesome. So okay, let's um, uh, let's let's jump ahead uh, on this. Uh, first. Some setup. I want to. I want to make sure. I, I, I'm tempted, of course, to jump ahead, but 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 I want to make sure we cover the other stuff too. Um, this is uh, at the end of the Bree chapter, right? As uh, as they're beginning the trek uh, with Trotter, and this is another one of those uh, notes about what's coming, right? And I always love those passages, you know, where 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 we can see Tolkien jotting down his ideas of what's to come. So here is what's to come on the trip from uh, whether from uh, Bree to Rivendell. That was done. Pillows put in beds. That is, you know, a Trotter has just said that they they need to go ahead. Because so, notice, this is often how it happens, right? Tolkien will kind of interrupt himself. He'll be writing, you know, a full narrative. And then he'll have some ideas, apparently, about where it's going to go. So he'll break off the narrative and he'll kind of segue into it. And, and he'll start just kind of jotting outline notes, right? And so, you know, we've seen how often his outline kind of merges into dialogue and more detailed uh, narrative, right? But the, the opposite happens as well. Narrative will suddenly shift into, uh, into outlines. And that's what's happening here. Trotter has just said, we, we better go, uh, 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 go check out your rooms and, and sort of set things up with the Prancing Pony. That was done. Pillows put in beds. Nothing happens that night, but in the morning, windows open, pillows on floor. The ponies have all vanished. Timothy i.e. Timothy Titus the landlord in a great state. So you'll remember this shows how this is this is really early. You'll recall as Christopher said Timothy Titus was the original name of uh, Barnabas Butterbur good old Barney um, uh, uh the first time through, and then he 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 quickly changed it to Butterbur. Um, so the fact that this outline still is showing Timothy as the name of the landlord shows that this is uh, this is still very early on. Uh, in a great state, they something a bill. He pays for the ponies, but there are no more to be had. Shortage in the village. They go on with Trotter on foot. Trotter takes them to a wild hobbit hole and gets his friend to run on ahead and send a message to Weathertop by pony. Trotter guides them by the quiet paths off the something road and going through the woods. Once far in distance, on a hill which looked down onto a piece of the road, they thought they saw a black rider sitting on his horse, scanning the road and the country round. Weathertop about 50, written beside 100, miles from Bree, commanding view all round. 
Gandalf had gone, but left a pile of stones. Message. Waited two days. Must go on. Push on for Ford. Help will be easy from Rivendell if I get there. They come to Troll Stones. Something of road. Here, owing to river ahead, they are obliged to go back to road. Black riders evidently expect them to visit Troll Wood, change to Trollshaw, and are waiting on road where path joined it. Okay, so that's the that's the projection. So, oh, obviously, one thing to notice: there's no attack, right? That was not part of the original idea. Um, and notice this has been a trend, right? Um, it's really interesting to see. Uh, it would be fun to sort of make and keep a list um, of the things that Tolkien does foresee and the things that he does not foresee, right? The things which emerge as he is kind of thinking through in advance and the things which emerge more spontaneously while he's in the middle of telling the story. So just as at Bree he foresaw the inn, he foresaw the drinking song, <laughs> you'll recall, right? Um, uh but he did not foresee Trotter. So the whole existence of Trotter, who is already a major character in this story, um, and of course, as we know, is going to grow into even more uh, later on, Trotter was totally unforeseen. Similarly, um, the trip, the flight to the Ford is foreseen. And we know from an earlier outline that the magical intervention at the Ford from Rivendell, uh, you know, with sort of Gandalf and Elrond collaborating on the Flood, we know that that is foreseen and has been foreseen now for quite some time, but the attack on Weathertop is not foreseen, right? We have we we have sightings of the Black Riders, right? That they're going to see the Black Rider from a distance, scanning the road. That they're gonna uh, that they're gonna themselves apparently go to Weathertop, which has a commanding view all round. Uh, that they're going to get Gandalf's message in the pile of stones, that they're going to go visit the troll stones, but that that's going to be a trap. Right? They're going to be trapped by the Black Riders when they emerge uh, from, uh, uh, from the troll wood, or the troll shaw, as he's going to call it. Uh, and that's where the, the last flight to the ford is going gonna, is gonna to come in. So, okay, it's fun to see that. I mean, notice... All of that stuff is going to be... Almost all of that stuff is going to be there, right? The active ambush, the fact that the the, the troll stones turns out to be... In, remember in, in, in the previous... In the last outline before this, um, he suggested that their choice to go to do a side trip to go see the trolls turns out to be uh, to be a foolish choice on their part, right? That it's, it's because of their poor decision in doing that that they end up being vulnerable to the Black Riders there um, was sort of that original idea. Um... Which is interesting, right? Again, think about, try to remember where Bingo is, right? I don't mean geographically. I mean where he is in his own career, right? Bingo, remember, he's leaving the Shire, right? He, he's, remember, he's leaving the Shire because he has, in fact, run out of money, right? So he, he's gotten poor, so he blows all the rest of his money, uh, almost all the rest of his money, on the big party, and he uh, gives away his hole for some reason, which is a strange thing, as Christopher points out, for a poor person to do, but he gives away his wealthy, his expensive hole, and uh, just leaves town. Right, so he wants to go out on adventures. He has no money anyway, so he's going to go maybe find some gold, something. So remember, he's just like, you know, wild and crazy, adventurous bachelor hobbit on the land, right? Just kind of doing, seeking adventures and going off to seek his fortune, literally going off to seek his fortune, right? Um, 
the idea, like, here we are going down the road. Hey, let's turn aside and go uh, and go say, like, hey, is, is, aren't, aren't Bilbo's trolls near here? We should totally go find the trolls, right? I mean, of course they would do that, right? Why wouldn't they do that? Well, of course, they're being pursued by, by black riders, and that should seem to inject a bit of urgency into the situation. But, um, but again, in the earlier... Uh, in the earlier outline where it was mentioned that they had made a poor choice. Yeah, it's a poor choice, but it's not totally unlike them. It's kind of like the poor choice of going into the common room at the inn, right? I mean, why shouldn't they? It's what you do, right? When you're in a, you're, I mean, they're in a friendly hobbit city like this and at a, at a friendly hobbit pub. Um, why shouldn't they join the company? You know, why? It, it's that they've got, they, they, they need to mind their P's and Q's, right? So that they uh, don't give themselves away because they're trying to remain incognito because they don't want people telling stories uh, or word getting back to their neighbors in the Shire where they ended up, you know, where they got up off to, but you know, the uh, urgency of the pursuit was never all that clear. Um, what Tolkien seems to be, you know, so how has the story changed here? Um we have a little bit more of the urgency. We don't have them being like, hey, let's gad off on a side trip to the trolls. That doesn't seem to be the case. They come to troll shows, um, to, to, to troll stones, and then, you know, they're obliged to go back to the road. This doesn't suggest now that they're just like making a day trip of going to see the trolls anymore. Um, so their own attitude seems to have changed, though Gandalf's attitude still hasn't, right? Remember, we were looking last time at the sort of somewhat surprisingly lackadaisical attitude of Gandalf, right? Not aware of the Black Riders who are right around him, pursuing him, um, not uh, staying himself, not seeking Bingo out, but just sort of continually leaving him letters and notes that say, hurry up, I'm just ahead of you. Um, and apparently, so apparently he's still doing that. Um, we have more of the kind of cat and mouse game with the Black Riders, but no other but no other kind of incidents. So, okay. So that seems to be where we are. Now, Ben, very good. Thank you for pointing that out. We do finally see some of those hobbit tramps, right? The, the ones that are little better than tramps that live in, uh, in, in, in mere holes. Um, Trotter was going to take them to a, a wild hobbit hole, right? Um, I guess that would be where a ranger lives, right? So... Think about that. Think about what we were looking at in terms of like Hobbit polity, right? With the Shire in the uh, in the west and the Rangers in the east, and Bree in the middle as the moderate point, right? Uh, that central Hobbit town. Um, well, we're the idea here, right? We're going to go see where the see how the other half lives, right? We came from the west. Now we're going to go to the east, and it's time to time to experience those uh, those though. Just you know the phrase wild hobbit is kind of funny, right? I mean, there's like intrinsic comedy uh, uh, in that phrase. It's hard. I find it hard not to laugh at the concept of like, this hole belongs to a wild hobbit. Um, it's uh, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. Um, now, James is asking, does this suggest the Black Riders know about the trolls and their link to bingo? Maybe. Um, it sounds like it. I mean, that sentence, black riders evidently expect them to visit Trollwood. Expect them to visit, right? Not knew they must come this way or something like that, but expect them to visit, right? We knew you would end up at the Trollwoods, right? So, yeah, James, I don't know what exactly, like what degree of, of familiarity with Bingo's family history that is suggesting, 
but some degree, right? A, you know, some non-negligible degree, they do seem to have some information in some way about that. And Carson, I also wonder who Trotter's friend was going to be. Um, uh, <laughs> Carson asks if we're going to get uh, a Hobbit version of Halberad, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, something, right? You know, that apparently, unless it's one of, it's unless it's his own wild hobbit hole, right? Um, but apparently not. I mean, he's he's got a friend who's going to run on ahead. Trotter does, apparently. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, the idea that perhaps um, there's, uh, um, there's, we're, we're, we're going to get something of actual, like, ranger culture, like, you know, ranger hobbit culture. Um, feral hobbit, Stephen, exactly. Now, I agree. Uh, feral is a word that's even more comical to apply to hobbits than, uh, uh, than wild. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, essentially, essentially, that's it. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, James, you're right. His, uh, friend, Almost certainly will have more sensible shoon than uh, than Trotter does. I mean, everyone has more sensible shoon than Trotter does. Okay, now so we're back to the narrative, right? And Tolkien is uh, is now is now writing the narrative. This is the paragraph that he cuts, um, and I think it's interesting. Interesting that he wrote it, and interesting that he cut it. How far is the Ford and Rivendell? said Bingo, wearily and perhaps unwisely. <laughs> the world looked wide and wild, wild and wide, from the hilltop. Let me think, said Trotter. I don't know if the road has ever been measured beyond the Forsaken Inn, a day's journey east of Bree, but the stages, in days taken by wagon, pony, horse, or on foot, are pretty well known, of course. I should reckon it is about a hundred and twenty long miles from Bree to Weathertop by the road, which loops south and north. We have come a shorter but not quicker way, between 80 and 90 miles in the last six days. It is nearer 40 than 30 miles from the Brandywine Bridge to Bree. I don't know, but I should make the count of miles from your bridge to the ford under the Misty Mountains a deal over 300 miles, so it must be close to 200 from the weather top to the ford. I have heard it said that from the bridge to the ford can be done in a fortnight going hard with fair weather, but I have never met any that had made the journey in that time. Most take nigh on a month, and poor hobbit folk on foot take more. Okay, that's a lot of information. Now, but here's my my point, of course, is not to... um, critique this paragraph, Tolkien himself cut it, right? He didn't, he didn't, and he, and he cut it, um, he cut it pretty quickly, right? Um, but what do we notice about this, right? What does this show us? Because I think this is kind of a revealing paragraph, actually, right? Um, what does it show? First, it shows me Tolkien thinks in map terms, Right? absolutely thinks in map terms. Um, He has a map in his head, and not only does Tolkien have a map in his head as he's writing this story, he has a map in his head with, like, a legend that shows a scale of miles, right? I mean, that whole business with, like, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's forty miles from the Brandywine Bridge to Bree, but from the, you know, it's it's probably so. It's got to be two hundred or so from the. I mean, like the math that he's doing and the, the I mean, yeah, it's uh, he's got this all worked out, right? Um, so what does this show us? It shows us he's uh, he's interested 
in this stuff. That seems like a silly an obvious point to make. But I think it's really crucial, right? Um, because this is a very early stage, right? This is where he starts and he cuts it out rather than him writing a more vague narrative and later on going back and being like, all right, let me work out the details here. No, apparently Tolkien works out the details first as he's writing the narrative. So the first go through, right? We see him. And now we saw this before, you know, remember the, the kind of funny in context, I thought it was funny in context conversation uh, that Odo and Frodo and Bingo were having as they were traveling through the Marish on the way to Farmer Maggots, um, where they had that long digression talking about uh, Hobbit architecture and, uh, uh, and, and, and preferences and throwing dishes out of windows. Um, you know, like while they were running from their lives and being hounded by black riders, and that was the, the long and detailed conversation that they were having. Um, this just seems to be another way in which, like, once Polk, Tolkien's pen starts going, right? Um, once his pen is moving and his ideas are flowing, these are some of the ideas that come out. Some of this stuff, which is really world-building stuff, whether it be uh, a cultural element like the stuff about Hobbit architecture and that conversation in the Marish, or whether it be map information like this, making sure he's really got it worked out and sorted. It's almost like, you know, it's almost as if... The first line, right? How far is it, is the ford in Rivendell, said Bingo wearily, was like a spontaneous question, right? It's a natural thing for Bingo to ask at that particular moment in time. And then it's almost as if now Tolkien has now asked that question. So he's got to, he works out the answer. And that paragraph is like Tolkien working out the answer, right? I mean, it almost, again, I'm not trying to pretend I know what's going on in Tolkien's mind or something, but it's almost like, that's what it sounds like. Um, and then he goes back and, and later on trims down and cuts it. Um, so, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, I, I think it's kind of revealing about how, uh, how Tolkien thinks. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's not at all surprising that Tolkien decides quickly to do away with this. And of course, it's fun to remember the thing that Aragorn says, which still uses many of these same words, right, but is a much more um, uh, sort of focused <laughs> response uh, than this. And, uh, um, and yeah, Mick, I agree. Landscape is, is really important uh, to Tolkien, definitely. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bree Melvin says, I relate so hard to Tolkien's obsession with maps and miles. Uh, same with his crazy attention to the locations of the Nazgul's and their flight patterns. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, yep, yeah, he he uh, he loved making up charts and schedules and things to make sure to keep everything straight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know, Matthew, I don't know how long a short mile is. Um, or how short a long mile is. I'm not really sure about that. Um, uh, one thing I uh, one thing I really like. I remember once I was at I was in New York when they were doing. Um, there was a display of uh, of Tolkien stuff that was on loan uh, from uh, uh, from Marquette, and it included the showpiece i mean by far the showpiece of this collection that was uh, uh that was being displayed there is at fordham university um was uh the original uh colored 
plates that Tolkien made of the Book of Mazarbal, which he had, because he, he wanted a, 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 a full-color image of the, you know, burned and torn page that Gandalf was translating uh, to be included in the book, and they never got that together. Um, but the original's gorgeous. It's awesome. You know, he's, like, colored in the dirt and the blood, dried blood and everything. It's really, really nice. Um, but also included in that um, uh, in that collection was a little a thing that he had jotted down, which was a a, a, a scale of um, distances, like a, a chart of equivalences. Um, and uh, the the main thing I remember there are two things that I remember uh, from this uh, uh, from this chart. Uh, one is that uh, they 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 measured in feet you know, yards and feet, hobbits did. Um, but they had a, they had a unit of measure that was shorter, uh, than, uh, than feet. And it was toes. <laughs> I just thought that was the most adorable thing I had ever seen in my life. And, uh, um, oh, Tom, it was the one in Manhattan. Yeah. And it was, uh, right around the time. Oh goodness. 2010 maybe 2011 ish somewhere in there. Um, but it was, it was, it was, it was the one in Manhattan. Um, uh, anyway. And, uh, but the other thing that I remember about it is that this, this chart was writ was written in pen on the back of a menu card, uh, from the faculty, uh, dinner table, uh, at his college. Uh, in other words, he'd written it at dinner, right? So there he is like dining, with the faculty, right? And he's, he's jotting down this chart of measurements on the back of the menu card, obviously at the table. <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I really love that. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, cool. Anyhow. Um, so d- just a little, 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 little side note on Tolkien's, uh, uh, Tolkien's obsession with, um, uh, with, uh, distances and, and measuring things out and stuff like that. Um, okay. Uh, oh, Lee was asking, uh, any idea why, uh, Tolkien spells wagon with two G's? Um, I don't know for a fact. I mean, uh, my guess, I'm sure it's just an archaic spelling. My guess is that wagon with one G is probably an Americanism. One of those things that Noah Webster did to American spelling. That's where, for instance, like, Plow, P-L-O-U-G-H, uh, as it was always traditionally spelled, was changed to P-L-O-W. That was Noah Webster being like, dang it, we Americans don't need so many bloody, you know, consonants or whatever. Um, but, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, oh, cool. Thanks, Yana. Uh, just to share... Let me just share the image of the Book of Mazarbal page, which Yana has found, just so that you can see it. There it is there. There it is there. Okay. Uh, anyway, okay, cool. Thanks, Yana. Um, uh, yeah, Brandon, he was the one who was also dropping. That's why color only has has no U and honor has no U in American. Yeah, exactly. That was I'm, I'm pretty sure that was uh, 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 Noah Webster's fault. Anyhow, so uh, so uh, without knowing any more, Lee, my my immediate guess is I'm blaming Noah Webster, but I'd have to look it up to confirm. But anyway, okay, let's move on. 
because we got important places to go here tonight. They get to Weathertop, right? Um, they had found signs of a recent camp and fire, and a great and most unexpected boon, behind a large rock was piled a small store of firewood. Better still, under the fuel they found a wooden case with some food in it. It was mostly cram cakes, but there was some bacon and some dried fruits. There was also some tobacco. Cram was, as you may remember, a word in the language of the men of Dale and the Long Lake, to describe a special food they made for long journeys. It kept good indefinitely, and was very sustaining, but not entertaining, as it took a lot of chewing and had no particular taste. Bilbo Baggins brought back the recipe. He used cram after he got home on some of his long, journey, his long and mysterious walks. Gandalf also took to using it on his perpetual journeys. He said he liked it softened in water, but that is hard to believe. But Cram was not to be despised in the wilderness, and the hobbits were extremely grateful for Gandalf's thoughtfulness. Um, first of all, I always really like little moments, even when they're tiny little moments, right? Uh, where Tolkien kind of keeps in a particular detail, but reverses it later on are always fun. Like, that's always fun, right? So this is one of those fun moments, right? You may remember in the Fellowship of the Ring, they find the wood, Right. Uh, and I, one of the hobbits, Pippin or Mary, says, um, maybe Gandalf left this for us. And, you know, and, Str- and Strider's like, nah, it wasn't Gandalf, but probably Rangers, right? Rangers use this, uh, use this place. But, of course, originally, it was Gandalf, right? And not only did he leave them uh, firewood, but he left them a care package, right? Food and, and uh, you know, cram and bacon and, and, uh, and, and pipeweed, right? There you are. So uh, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of fun, right? So on the one hand, this is sort of fun. And on, on the other hand, it shows, again, notice, like, the tone of... Of of like, so Gandalf is leaving them care packages, right? He stayed here two days and he can't stay any longer. But he, you know he's he's going to leave them some cram and pipe weed, right? It's almost as if he still thinks this is a Hobbit walking party, right? Has it's like has Gandalf yet latched on to the idea that they're being hunted? I mean, his letter suggest not his letter, but his. Uh, uh, his note, right, that he left, and remember, of course, he left a note in the uh, pile of stones, not just the rune scratched onto the stone. Um, but in the note that he left, you know, he's still saying pushed on, and he seems to have caught on to the fact that there's some urgency, and yet there's still this kind of casual... Uh, that, the fact that pipeweed is included in the care package just, just kind of strikes that note of, uh, you know... I left a hamper for you guys, like, you know, not like this is desperate survival food and we hope you make it through the wilderness. It's, uh, um, I don't know, it's just, it's, it, it, it's just still a little bit strange that Gandalf is, is, is kind of slow to catch on uh, in some ways, or at least the narrative surrounding Gandalf seems not to have really uh, um, uh, caught up. Uh, the other thing, and no, Arthur, it is that. Uh, thank you for noticing that. Excellent, Brandon and Arthur both noticed the significance um, of uh, the use of the word tobacco. Right? Um, yes, Tolkien makes the command decision. He uses the word tobacco in the Hobbit. Right? It's a standard thing, and he's. This is obviously continuous with that. The cram cakes thing, right? Makes the connection with the Hobbit. I mean, as you may remember, if you've read the Hobbit, right? So uh, the Hobbit context is really strong, especially in this passage, right? But in the Hobbit, he used the word tobacco many times. 
well, several times anyway, whenever it came up. Um, but he's he he will in the future, obviously still in the future, make the choice that he's not going to use that word anymore in the Lord of the Rings. But that itself, the fact that the word tobacco is still here, suggests two things, right? On the one hand, still very much thinking in terms of Hobbit sequel, right? We see him making these explicit links back to the Hobbit. He's still clearly sort of operating in the same mode to some extent anyway as the Hobbit, right? Um, He's not yet decided that this thing is going to be something else, which seems to be implied in the decision that he made, like none of these newfangled words. Remember, it's not, he doesn't object to tobacco because it's a newfangled thing that is only discovered in the new world. What he doesn't like is that the word tobacco is a newfangled word. Um, He's willing to include things like tobacco and potatoes, which have only been in Europe since the discovery of the New World. He is less willing in The Lord of the Rings, eventually. He will become less willing in The Lord of the Rings to use words that have only come into the language since the discovery of the New World. Right? Um, 1500 is kind of his cutoff, and he wants to use only words uh, that have been introduced to the language prior to 1500. So he's going to ditch, he's going to ditch uh, 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 tobacco. The word, and he's going to replace it with pipeweed. That's why it's called pipeweed, because those two words, pipe and weed, are two perfectly good old English words, and they can be combined together uh, as a functional synonym of tobacco. And it's one of the reasons why uh, the whole play on, you know, on uh, marijuana in the films and stuff is so puerile, because it's it's pipeweed for smoking in pipes. It's tobacco. Um, they even, even, it's, I just, I get kind of weary of that. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, Marielle. 1066, if he can help it, right? Preferably 1066, pre-1066. Um, you know, and why would he use 1500 as, as the cutoff? Um, well, because it's like the beginning of the modern world, right? You know, it's like he's... Remember, he did a lot of Middle English stuff, right? A lot of his professional—I mean, of course, he's fa- he's famous for Beowulf, but he didn't do Beowulf full time. I mean, a lot of his attention was spent on Middle English stuff. Uh, the the uh, Ankrena rule, uh, you know, the uh, or the Ankrena Wissa, as it is often called, um, is Middle English piece on which he was the greatest living expert uh, in his time. Uh, of course, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and the Pearl Poet. Uh, it, the poet of Sir Gowan the Green Knight and the Pearl, um, whom I like talking, believe to be the same guy. Um, it's uh, the uh, Middle English stuff. So he doesn't. He he he's willing to include Middle English. He's willing to kind of grandfather in Middle English, and even though you know it's been wrecked, right? I mean, English has been wrecked by the French influence post 1066, no question. But it, it's still better, you know, than the modern era. So uh, you know, pre Shakespeare, and you're fine. Pretty much fine. Uh, anyway, um, uh, okay, sorry. So, uh, but Cram, the other thing, right? The other thing that's interesting and noticeable about this is notice how in Tolkien's imagination here, Bilbo has become the epicenter, like he's become a cultural influence not only in the Shire, but outside it, right? Um, this idea that Gandalf himself has adopted something that originates with Bilbo is kind of fun, right? Um, 
And eventually we'll see him retain that, of course, right? Not from Bilbo personally, um, but Gandalf be influenced, learn things from, uh, from hobbits. And of course, in the end, what he's going to have learned from hobbits and adopted, excuse me, from hobbits is smoking, right? Pipe smoking. Um, but, um, but for now, um, uh, yeah, but so well, no, Arthur, I would say that he does. Because, so look here. Um, Bilbo brought back the recipe, right? And used it. Gandalf also took to using it on his perpetual journeys. Um, I don't believe that that means. I mean, you know, I, I guess you could argue, like, well, you know, Gandalf also, like, was in Dale, and so since he's... But Gandalf's been to Dale before, and he's never started using cram. Um, the previous sentence, Bilbo Baggins brought back the recipe, you know, it seems to to give Bilbo credit for popularizing it, right? Especially among his circle. Uh, and Gandalf is one of his circles here. So I, th- I think that... Uh, uh, yeah, I know he could have gotten it directly from Dale, but but I think the previous sentence suggests that uh, Bing uh, Bilbo is the one who brought. And again, that's kind of, to me that's kind of fun. I love the idea um, that Bilbo has had this influence again, not just on Bingo and the younger generation of hobbits, uh, but on uh, um, but on on Gandalf himself. I think that's 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 kind of neat. Um, all right. This, I think, is one of the things that we begin to see uh, where one of the ways in which the narrative often kind of changes, or rather, this seems to me to illustrate uh, one of the kinds of narrative developments that happen when he shifts from outline to, to, to writing narrative, right? When he's just doing the outline, notice in that outline that we started, slide one from today, it said almost nothing about the journey, right? It was just like key points along the journey uh, and sort of pivotal things like the Black Riders waiting for them and ambushing them. Um, here, notice that as uh, as things go, as he really begins to kind of, as he really kind of comes down to ground level and, and, uh, and, and, and really invests himself imaginatively in the story, some things come up that uh, he didn't seem to foresee. Right. So now, since Gandalf had gone, they had to depend on what they carried with them, probably until they found their way at last to Rivendell. For water, they were obliged to trust a chance. For food, they could perhaps just have managed to go ten or eleven days. And now, with Gandalf's additions, they could, with economy, probably hold out for more than a fortnight. It might have been worse, but starving was not their only fear. Right? Um, there was no reference to starving. Right? The... Uh, the idea that they might be at risk of starvation. Um, and remember, that was a major feature in The Hobbit, right? There were a couple times when um, starvation seemed imminent. Remember how hungry it was and how long it had been since Bilbo had eaten between when they get captured by goblins and when they end up uh, up with the eagles, right? Remember, obviously, of course, the central importance of the near starvation of Bilbo and the dwarves in Mirkwood, Right. So uh, and and that's an example in his outline drafts. As I recall, he foresaw the starving. Right. The the idea that they were going to wander until they ran out of food and then were almost starving. And that's what's going to lead them to leave the path was, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, one of the things that Tolkien included in his outlines in in, while he was writing The Hobbit. One of the things that he really did foresee. So but he doesn't do that here. This seems to be 
Tolkien thinking through, the, and he's he does you know we see him doing this a lot, right? That he's uh, uh, you know when he actually gets to it, we we can see him doing making notes, you know, Bree, just like those uh, th- those kind of lists and calculations we were looking at before, right? That you were talking about how much you can relate to, um, you know, that here he is in Rivendell, and he's like, well, okay, I just worked out the distances, right? It's you know it's like two hundred miles, and it's going to take them a whole bunch of time, and are they carrying enough food? They're probably not carrying enough food. They wouldn't be carrying enough food. How much food would they have to carry in order to supply themselves all, all the way to Rivendell? Oh, might not be enough. So we, we throw in a care package, right? And so with economy, we probably hold out for more than a fortnight, right? So the idea, again, this seems to be another one of those moments where we see Tolkien kind of working out these ideas on the fly, or at least, again, it has that sort of feeling, especially when we look at it in, uh, uh, in comparison with the outlines. Um, but the... Um, uh, but we can also really see his uh, his his attention uh, to detail there. Um, and Brandon, yeah, Brandon says, could somebody tell Gandalf the party is in danger of starving? I know, right? It's just Gandalf. Um, one of the one of the other great moments, of course, in the uh, Lord of the Rings is going to be the moment when Gandalf gets a clue. Because he doesn't seem to have much of a clue here, right? I waited for you for two days, and you're probably being pursued. And I'm, and and uh, but I'm not going to do the math that you like are going to be in risk of starving. He does leave a care package, right? I mean, we have to give Gandalf that he does leave them a little bit of something. But, um, um, uh, you know the uh, the 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 idea that um, they're going to be in serious danger in large part because they don't have the ponies and wagons that Gandalf has. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's just, like I said, I find it kind of interesting. Let's keep going. As the evening deepened, Trotter began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. He knew much lore concerning wild animals and claimed to speak some of their languages. And he had strange stories to tell of their lives and little known adventures. That is, of the animals' lives and little-known adventures, presumably. He knew also many histories and legends of the ancient days. Wait, he knows a- histories and legends of the ancient days? What are we talking... Oh, of hobbits when the Shire was still wild, and of things beyond the mists of memory, out of which the hobbits came. They wondered where he had learned all this lore. I, too, wonder where he had learned all this lore. And more importantly, I wonder what the heck that lore is. I want to hear Trotter's stories. I want to hear Trotter's stories about the, the history and legends of the ancient days. That is, those ancient days. Um, above Hobbits when the Shire was still wild. I want to hear, like, you know, the Wild West stories. When the Shire was still the Wild West, right? Uh, you know, out in the... Uh, out in the you know, when the Shire was like the outback, right? That would have been awesome. And, uh, uh, and, and, and the lives and little known adventures of animals, please more of that. That would be awesome. Uh, That would be, that would be great. But notice, um, this is Trotter's lore, right? They wondered where he had learned all his lore. Remember that line says about Strider, but the lore, of course, that Strider has that they wonder where he learned is elven lore, right? Stories about the ancient days of Middle-earth, Silmarillion stuff. That isn't the case here. I personally would argue that's hugely important. Still, on page 179, when this paragraph was written, it seems to be Tolkien's first impulse. 
Trotter has lots of lore, and Trotter tells them stories. He does not go to the Silmarillion material. That's not the lore Trotter has. Trotter has Hobbit lore, right? Um, histories and legends, ancient days, things beyond the mists of memory, but it's still Hobbit lore. This is still a sort of Hobbit story, Hobbit, big Hobbit culture story, right? Shire, Bree, uh, Rangers, right? And now ancient history. We're going to find out about, like, when the Shire was settled and what might have happened like that. Anyway, there's um, lots of stuff, right? Lots of stuff that we could, uh, that that he learns here. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, but not yet the Elven lore. Then we get attacked in Rivendell. Terror seized Odo and Frodo, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Merry shrank to Bingo's side. Bingo was no less afraid. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold. But his fear was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. It seized him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but he felt a desperate desire to disregard all warnings. Something seemed to be compelling him. He longed to yield, not with the hope of escaping or of doing anything, good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable, and at last he slowly drew out the chain, unfastened the ring, and put it on the forefinger of his left hand. This is a really big moment, right? Um, this is the first time we see any evidence of, the, of this kind of direct influence of the ring on its bearer, right? That's assuming that the compulsion is coming from the ring. That's not obvious, I would say. It might not be. It could, in theory, be the ringwraith who is exercising compulsion on him. Um, given um, what... Um, given... Um, Given what we've heard about the ring and ring wraiths, right? Um, you know, enslavement and wraithification and all that kind of thing. We've not been given any s reason to suspect this kind of compulsive power um, in the ring wraiths. But we have in the rings of power. Um, that if you have a ring, it, can, can, it will enslave you. Um, this does seem to be... I would, in the context of everything we've seen up to this point in this book, it does seem to suggest that this is the first clear evidence that Bing, that Bingo has begun the process of uh, what was that phrase? Passing through the ring, right? Um, and this is clearly this is clearly a big deal, right? Clearly a big deal that we have this in the narrative because we've 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 never had it before. Right, um, even the pursuit of the ring wraiths at times has seemed sort of distant. Something some of the characters seem almost to be forgetting at times. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, so this is a huge step forward. Um, and uh, let's see, hang on a second. Um, 
and Christopher talks about how it is a huge deal. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at the Pale King. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He seemed able to see beneath their black wrapping. There were three tall figures. In their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their black mantles were long gray robes. Upon their gray hair were helms of silver. In their haggard hands were swords of steel. Their eyes fell upon him and pierced him as they rushed towards him. Desperate, he drew his own sword, and it seemed to him that it flickered redly, as if it was a firebrand. Two of the figures halted, but the third was taller than the others. His hair was long and gleaming, and on it was a crown. The hand that held the long sword glowed with a pale light. He sprang forward and bore down upon Bingo. Um, this is really good, right? Um, now, this, of course, is another new thing, right? Remember where the Black Riders started from. Remember that they were originally Gandalf and then became the Black instead of the White Rider, right? Um, they uh, they were they looked like a a little bundle with boots on a horse in that first description. You'll recall, um, kind of getting down and snuffling along the ground, creepy but not terrifying exactly, right? Um, you'll remember also. That at that point, we got, Christopher gave us a lot of the things where Tolkien was kind of working out the whole ring thing, right? He, he, he quickly decided the ring should be the thing, and the whole ring of power, and it comes from the, from the, necro, it's the, it's the necromancer's ring, and it has the power to enslave, and the whole wraithification process, all that stuff, right? He was working all that stuff out. But what we did not see after he had worked all that stuff out was very much intervention, any very obvious intervention of those concepts into the narrative, right? Imagine if you had been reading this book all the way through, but imagine you had skipped that bit. You had skipped the bit where we were getting Tolkien kind of working through and writing those, remember those proto-conversations which were sort of originally with the Gildor and the elves and then with Gandalf, um, including that really abortive, like, second start at chapter one, right, where he was going to do the Shadow of the Past in Chapter 1 instead, basically. Anyway, um, so um, uh, he um, he if we'd skipped that, right, and just kept following Bingo's narrative all the way through, I don't think we would have been able to tell. Because remember, even after that, even after he works out the Ringwraith thing, he was going to make the Ringwraith Barrowwise. He was, gonna, he was identifying them for a brief time. So we've seen his, I won't say his ideas about the Black Riders fluctuating, but um, the, the, the as-yet sort of theoretical Ringwraith status or stature um, of the Black Riders has not yet really been fully embodied in the story itself until now, right? Um, again, it's sort of almost like um, just as that other passage, the TMI passage uh, that I quoted in slide two, just like that one read as if Tolkien hadn't worked out the distances and the map details until Bingo asked the question, but once Bingo posed the question, he has to answer it and work out the answer, right? It's almost it's almost like a similar thing is kind of happening here, right? He 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 had worked out in theory the whole ringwraith thing, um, but he hadn't really thought through what are the ringwraiths like, um, what would it look like 
if you confronted the ringwraith and put on the ring, right? Um, that it was dangerous to do so, the elves told him way back, right? That he shouldn't use the ring. Gandalf told him not to use the ring anymore, not even for a joke, right? Um, though he can't be bothered to wait for him. Never mind. But the point is, um, it, we've seen some kind of hints, but never yet has he really had to work through what does that look like? Who are these people? The ringwraiths, right? And what do they look like? And how does how do they interact with the ring? And how does the ring interact with you? And here we get it, right? Now that they're face-to-face, Tolkien works it out. And now they no longer look like bundles of black cloth with boots, right? Three tall figures, their white faces burned, in their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Great descriptions, right? Really dramatic stuff. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Arthur, I agree with you. We have no indication that they ever put the ring on any finger other than the index finger. That seems to be the finger that he that it, that they put it on. Um, I mean, I know it's natural to kind of imagine it on the ring finger, right? But I don't see any evidence that anybody kept it on their ring fingers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, so, and yeah, so, yeah, they're, they're no longer invisible. Well, they're no longer invisible when Bingo has the ring on, right? Um, now he can see them. So this idea of, like, now he's, when he's invisible, he's in the wraith world, that now seems to be, well, I won't say more fully realized, but actualized, right, within the narrative. And that's really cool. So, I mean, this is a, this is a this is a really important moment. Um, here's uh, um, Christopher Tolkien talking about this. Trotter's tales were only to be concerned with animals of the wild, and then follows at once fight in Dell with a sketch with a sketch in a few lines scribbled down at great speed, of which, however, something can be disinterred. Bingo is tempted to put on ring. He does so. The riders come at him. He sees them plain, fell white faces. He draws his sword, and it shines like fire. They draw back, but one rider with long silver hair and a red hand leaps forward. Bingo something hears himself shouting, Elbereth Gilthonio something else, struck at the leg of the rider. He felt something cold pain in the shoulder. There was a flash. The attack on the Dell entered before the idea that Trotter should chant to them and tell them a tale of ancient days, and the material of his tale remains in this manuscript in a very rough state, the primary stage of composition, obviously demanding the compression that it afterwards received. Note the significance of this. Note what Christopher Tolkien has just told us. So, here's J.R.R. Tolkien, right, writing the Weathertop chapter. He writes the Weathertop, he gets them to Weathertop, and Trotter's telling them tales. The animal tales, remember? The animal tales and the ancient Hobbit history tales? That paragraph that we read before? So that paragraph we, we read before was Tolkien's original idea. And in the original drafting, it is not followed by the Baron and Luthien story. The Hobbit and Animal Stories paragraph is followed by this outline. So what comes to him then is the fight in the Dell, right? The idea of the fight in the Dell comes to him and we get this quick outline 
of the fight in the Dell. Notice all of these images popping up in Tolkien's mind. Once he's there, right, and realizing, like, you know, as they're all waiting in the dark and they're scared, and it's like he realizes, wait a second, they get attacked by black riders. And immediately, boom, right? Notice the visual images. Fell white faces. He draws his sword and it, sword and it shines like fire. Um, they drew back, but one rider with long silver hair and a red hand, possibly. Uh, the question marks, of course, are where Christopher can't be 100% sure of the, of, the, of, the, of, of, of the handwriting, which is always really, really bad when Tolkien is jotting down these outlines. Um, uh, Bingo, hearing himself shouting. Hears himself shouting. Really important there, right? This idea of the, like, involuntary elvish proclamation coming out of Bingo's mouth is one of those initial images. Uh, The cold pain in the shoulder. A flash, apparently. These were all things that, uh, um, that came to him right away, right? But notice, it hasn't yet, that Baron and Luthien stuff hasn't come yet. Originally, Trotter was going to tell him wild hobbit-like things, right? Animal stories, ancient hobbit stories. So he was going to have lore, but it was going to be hobbit lore, and then the fight at the Dell comes in. Christopher Tolkien lays a great emphasis, a very great emphasis, on this passage. Rarely does Christopher Tolkien go back and underline things as hard as he's doing here, right? Um, he's usually fairly restrained. Um, this is uh, this is kind of a big uh, kind of a big deal. Then, apart from a few details, as that there are three ring raids, not five, the text written in ink on top of the draft achieved the final story. No element in the potent scene, the fearful suspense on the cold hillside in the moonlight, the dark shapes looking down in, lo- looking down as the hobbits huddled round the fire, the irresistible demand on the ring-bearer to reveal himself, and the final revelation of what lay beneath the cloaks of the riders is absent, and all is told virtually in the very words of the Fellowship of the Ring. The significance of the ring, in its power to reveal and to be revealed, its operation as a bridge between two worlds, two modes of being, has been attained once and for all. Huge deal, right? The, 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 the story has taken a quantum leap forward. Um, you could say that... Uh, um, you could say that uh, uh, any... Like, this possibly rivals... Probably not quite, but you could put it you could put it number two perhaps to the appearance of the black rider back in the in the you know the chapter two material um, when Bingo's leaving the Shire as huge moments for the development of the Lord of the Rings story right that moment the black rider showed up huge deal right this moment now when all of a sudden this the ring lore and the ring wraith stuff that had been kind of rattling around and he'd been kind of when that crystallizes and come through comes through and uh, this is this is a big deal so i totally agree with christopher this is a this is um uh this is huge but i think that christopher tolkien has overlooked the really important thing that happened here. I think that this is small potatoes. It's huge, but it's small potatoes compared to the really big thing that I would argue has just happened. Um, Point of contrast. Jump back with me for a second to the previous chapter. Um, When Trotter is telling them they're still in the wild, right, waiting to get to Weathertop, um, 
notice, I'm sure you noticed, when this popped in, right? No, said Trotter, there is no barrow on Weathertop, nor on any of these hills. The men of the West did not live here. I do not know who made this path, nor how long ago, but it was made to provide a way to Weathertop that could be defended. It is told by some that Gilgalad and Valandil, later changed to Elendil, made a fort and strong place here in the ancient days, when they marched east. Who was Gilgalad? asked Frodo, but Trotter did not answer, and seemed to be lost in thought. Has the Silmarillion arrived? Right? Mm, Not convinced. Right? Um, This sounds like exactly the kind of breaking in of history that was happening through The Hobbit, right? This sounds to me exactly like the invocation of, of, uh, um, of, what do you call it? Of, uh, um, Gondolin. Gondolin. In The Hobbit. I hate it when I blank like that. Um, you know, when, when, when Gondolin gets referred to, right? Uh, Gilgalad and Velandil, which was an earlier name for Elendil, the name Velando got tossed about a lot, as many of you will recall from the Fall of Numenor material in The Lost Road. Um, uh, we get this sort of oblique reference to the, uh, uh, to the Last Alliance. But again, this kind of sounds like one of those um, recycling moments, right? Um, here's... Um, Christopher. For the story of Gilgalad and Elendil in the Last Alliance, as it was at this time, see the second version of The Fall of Numenor, section 14, uh, back in The Lost Road. Um, Though Elendil is present in The Fall of Numenor, my father does not seem to have been entirely satisfied with the name. Here he wrote Velandil first, and in the original draft of the next chapter he changed Elendil temporarily to Orendil. In The Lost Road, Velandil was the name of Elendil's father. And in a later version of The Fall of Numenor, Velando is, is Elendil's brother. And of course, as we know, eventually Velando is going to be Elendil's grandson. Um, but notice, notice. Um, in my mind, this backs up my reading of that, of that paragraph. I mean, I, my, again, my reading of this is that it kind of as soon as I read it, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like recycling. I mean, maybe not, but it sounds like recycling. Um, that he's, this is not a re- true integration of the Silmarillion legends uh, with his new story, um, but he's just kind of using the concept. Um, and I think it's, I think that this, Christopher Tolkien isn't talking about that, but I think that the, what, he's, what he's pointing to here supports that. Um, the name Elendil was already there, right? He's changed He's changed the story of, um, uh, or he's, he's changed the name of Elendil to Velando. So he's not even using the same thing, right? He's like, uh, uh, so Gilgalad and Velando, inspired by the stories of Gilgalad and Elendil that we read before. Does this mean that he really is using the, the, um, the, the story of Elendil? You know, that he really is integrating that and he's just waffling about the name. Quite possible. He did that a lot. But again, that that's not that's not my reading of this. I think I think again this just sort of shows he's like, well, you know, whatever. It does it doesn't have to be exactly consistent, right? Because um uh it's um 
you know, it, 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 it doesn't have to be exactly consistent because it's a different thing, right? Just as his description of Gondolin is not exactly consistent with the Silmarillion material, uh, the, you know, what he says about it in The Hobbit. Um, so, um, uh, so, okay. All right. Um, you know, this is, um, uh, this is interesting. Um, uh, Brandon and I agree that it's a big deal that he uses Elbereth as a chant, but remember he's already met the elves, right? We already got the Elbereth song um, in uh, the earlier chapter, right? So that's still an internal thing, an internal elf culture thing. Um, uh, I think that's important, but that's still, again, this... So, I find this inconclusive. My own theory, I mean, if I had to state my own sense of this is that he's still uh he's still on the fa- he's still he, he's still recycling then then trotter says the thing right and this this is the paragraph that i would argue is the most important paragraph tolkien ever wrote in his entire life but i will tell you the tale of tenuvio in brief for it is a long tale, of which the end is not known, and there is no one that remembers it in full as it was told of old, unless it be Elrond. But even in brief, it is a fair tale, the fairest that has come out of the oldest days. He fell silent for a moment, and then he began not to speak, but to chant softly. Put in light on linden tree, emended, or the alliterative lines, follow with brief Tenuvial story. There it is. This is unquestionable. Unquestionable. At, from this point, it is impossible to argue that he's merely recycling. Now, the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion world have officially joined. And you can see, it couldn't be more obvious that they are totally joined now. You might want to argue, I mean, there, there might be people want to argue that like the Gilgalad and Villando thing suggests it's already there. You know, there have been some other references. I don't think so. I think it's still recycling. At least I don't see any clear evidence that he's not recycling Hobbit style, right? Um, We see him already, as I was arguing earlier on today, still thinking in Hobbit mode with the tobacco and the cram, right? Um, I think think that the references to Elbereth and the references to Gilgoad and Vilandil are him recycling. This is not recycling. Now we are officially, totally bringing the stories of the elder days. Now, for the first time, his mythology that he's been working on and trying in vain to get published becomes the tales that come out of the eldest days. And of course, those of you who have been studying with us in the Mythgard Academy right along through will notice the significance of that paragraph. It's not just that he's going to tell the story of Tenuvio. Right, which is a big deal, right? Is the whole a retelling of the whole tale of Tenuvio is not just recycling, right? Um, but look at the posture that Trotter is taking. Whom does he sound like? Whom does he sound like? He sounds like the Book of Lost Tales, right? He sounds like one of the frame narrators in the book t- talking to Ariel. I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio in brief. 
For it is a long tale, of which the end is not known, and there is no one that remembers it in full, as it was told of old. Right? Uh, it's all, from the beginning of that sentence all the way through, of which the end is not known, that could be straight out of the Book of Lost Tales. Right? Um, all of a sudden, now Trotter becomes a Book of Lost Tales narrator, and we are completely there. Right? Um, now... Tolkien's mythology that he's been working and working on for more than 20 years, right? And rewriting and trying to get published. And it's been rejected, right? And so I was joking, you know, that he's circumventing editorial objections here, right? Oh, you won't publish the story of Baron and Luthien? Well, okay, I'm going to include it, right? But also, of course, I can't help but remember. Remember when we were doing the Lays of Beleriand? Um... For those of you who didn't study the Lays of Beleriand with us, the, the, there are primarily two poems, two long poems in the Lays of Beleriand. There's a bunch of other poetic material in there as well. But there were two long poems that Tolkien wrote predominantly during the 20s. Uh, the first was the alliterative Children of Hurin. It's the Turin Turambar story in alliterative verse, modern English, alliter- excuse me, alliterative verse. Um, and he, he starts telling the, the story of Turin, and he gets pretty far, he gets him all the way into Nargothrond, and then stops, and then he goes back and starts again, of course, because it's Tolkien, and it's what he does. So he goes back to the beginning and starts again. But the second time, when he's going through, the, he keeps getting, he gets this twitch, this creative twitch, and the story of Baron and Luthien keeps, like, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a baby chick in the shell, you know, sort of poking and, like, you know, cracking and poking. And, until finally the story of Baron and Luthien just pops out. He can't help himself, right? He digresses. Uh, and he, he includes a moment in the Turin story when somebody tells Turin the story of Baron and Luthien. Right. And uh, and that ends up getting like really, really, really long. And, and so in the end, he's just like, I can't fight it any longer. And so he sets aside the alliterative Children of Hurin and starts writing the epic poem version uh, of the story of Baron and Luthien, which was called the Lay of Lathian. Um, so we've seen this kind of thing happen before, right, where all of a sudden here's Tolkien minding his own business, writing a totally independent story. And then like he is overcome by the story of Baron and Luthien and it will out. Right. Uh, and we 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 see that again. Of course, light on linden tree. Uh, light is leaf on linden tree. That's why uh, uh, Christopher says seek there because light is leaf on linden tree was the actual title. Tolkien is has put a just a, a jotted down a, a quick short version. He knows what he's talking about. Um, that was a poem which was originally written in the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. Um, but then excerpted from that and he published it separately in a magazine um and uh it's an awesome poem and he's now decided he's going to insert that poem here in full um and uh yeah so yana exactly this is the moment when the hobbit sequel grows up um i really think that uh um it's yeah. Nancy uh, Fosberg was thinking of the same thing about uh, the story of Baron and Luthien elbowing its way in. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, or the alliterative lines, right? That is, he's thinking back to the original version in the in the in the lay of the Children of Hurin. Um, follow with brief Tenuvial story. Um, so yeah, I am 
I am fully convinced. I, you know, I, 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 maybe somebody someday will convince me otherwise. Maybe I'll change my mind down the road. But I think that this is the moment. I think that the moment that Trotter... Because remember, in the first draft, Trotter just had animal stories and Hobbit history stories, right? Um, the lore that they were marveling that he knew didn't include anything like this. He didn't have any of the lost tales, right? Um, then we tell the story, he gets the story of the fight in the Dell. Now he's going back in pen, right, over his penciled original. And boom. But I will tell you the tale of Tenuvium. Um, and Tolkien's writing will never be the same, right? Uh, Tolkien's world will never be the same. Um, it is the, if the Lord of the Rings had never integrated with his legendarium, right? Had never merged with his mythology, what would it have become? I mean, still to this point, it's still a sequel to The Hobbit. It's not yet significantly changed. Um, you know, when you take The Lord of the Rings and you put it next to The Hobbit, everybody, when they put The Lord of the Rings next to The Hobbit, are like, wow, that's really different, right? You wouldn't do that with this story so far. It's not all that different. Um, and in fact, he keeps tying it in. From now on, it's going to be different, right? This is the real change. And it's, fr- you know, now, the integ- remember, without the integration... With his method, the true integration, not just recycling, without the integration, we would never have gotten Strider, right? We'd never have gotten Gondor. We'd never have gotten, I mean, and, and uh, you know, that's not arisen yet. None of that stuff has arisen yet. Um, so, uh, anyway, I can't make, uh, can't make enough of a big deal, I think, uh, about this. Um, and uh, yeah, Kimber, you're t- I was thinking the same thing, Kimber. I was just thinking I was going to have to apologize. Kimber says she knows I'm not fond of Trotter, but I have to give him credit for bringing Luthien in the story. Yes, yes, I agree. I am not fond of Trotter, but uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Trotter who gets the words which change the world, right? Change Tolkien's world. And I don't mean his imaginative world. I mean his real world, right? Uh, this is the huge moment. Let's look at the poem. You know we have to look at the poem. Now, I'm not going to go through the poem, uh, the whole the poem stanza by stanza, um, mostly because we've already looked at this poem before, the earlier version of the poem, the Ways of Balerian class. Um, and if you go back to the Ways of Balerian class, you can find, you know, go through the, you know, go to, um, you know, on YouTube, you can go to our... Uh, uh, the playlist in the Signum University channel. Uh, there's there's a whole playlist for the Ways of Balerian class. I forget which one it was. Maybe it cost four, maybe five. But I do it at the beginning of class, the very start of class. Um, so you can hear me go through that whole poem and look at the whole thing. Um, what I want to focus on is how he's changed it. Not just how he's changed the poetics of it. I mean, there are some changes which we can notice. Um, and I think it's it's a good revision. But what I want to see is, what does he do with the story? Um, because, you know, I have to admit, when I first got to that paragraph, right, when Trotter brings in Luthien to Nuviel, my first impulse was like, oh, recycling again, right? So he's going to recycle to Nuviel now? But then, he get the po- then we get the poem. So let's look at the poem and see, can we be 100% sure that we're not recycling anymore, that this is the real deal, right? Um, 
Here's the original version. Their magic took his weary feet, and he forgot his loneliness, and out he danced, unheeding, fleet, where the moonbeams were a-glistening. Through the tangled woods of Elfiness they fled on nimble fairy feet, and left him to his loneliness in the silent forest listening. This is what I think it stands a three of the poem. Um, and here, of course, we have, uh, this is Baron's reaction after he has seen Tenuviel dancing uh, for the first time. Now notice the revision. Enchantment took his weary feet. By the way, I want you to make observations, right? You need to, you need to, you need to contribute to this. So tell me, what do you see? What do you notice? What changes really jump out at you when you look at these two stanzas side by side? Enchantment took his weary feet, that over stone were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened, strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods of elven home they fled on swiftly dancing feet, and left him lonely still to roam in the silent forest listening. What do you notice? Julie, good. The removal of the word magic and of the word fairy. Yes, yes. Um, We don't get fairy feet anymore. Good. Sharon, absolutely. Doom, says Sharon. Yes, we get doom in the second. And Sharon, I would say that's a trend, right? Um, In fact, Sharon, if I had to choose one single word to epitomize the difference between the old version and the new version, it would be doom. That would be, that would probably be my one single word. Um, uh, and good. Nelson, yes, at the beginning. So we've got... Uh, um, uh, uh, what does What is Baron doing? What action is he taking? Notice that that changes. It's a big deal, right? What's he do? What's he do in the first version? What's his response to seeing her dancing? Yeah, exactly. Uh, he... Brianna, he, he joins in, right? He dances. Um, unheeding, he dances. He falls under enchantment. Notice the word enchantment is not used. It's used in the new version, not in the old version. But enchantment is clearly what's being described, right? Um, he is swept into the fairy enchantment that he is seeing. So he breaks out of the bushes, not running, right? But dancing, Right? He's like, I am drawn in and I am joining the dance. Right? That's what happened to Baron in the old version. Now, forth he hastened, strong and fleet. Now he's running, right? And grasped at moonbeams glistening. He danced where the moonbeams were glistening, right? The moonbeams were just where he was dancing, right? Um, now he is hastening and grasping at the moonbeams. His actions are very different. Um, in the original version, what we were clearly seeing, and I think, the, that, the, I, I hope that nobody at any point in my discussion of this, these stanzas of the poem suspects that I am attempting to slight or make fun of the earlier version of the poem. I love the earlier version of the poem. The earlier version of the poem is one of my favorite poems by Tolkien. Um, the revision is really good. But I love this earlier poem, so um, I'm not uh, uh, I'm not making fun of it. Um, and it was a huge moment. I've argued before that I think that poem was the moment that really. Det- I mean, um, 
I think it was Lightus Leaf on Linden Tree that was the turning point of his like mythology formation earlier on. I mean, it was a huge deal. I think it was a huge deal. Um, but what what it is, the story is a classic fairy story. Remember in his essay on fairy stories, what a fairy story is, right? How he defines fairy story. It's not a story about fairies, right? What is it a story about? What's a fairy story? How can you tell a fairy story when you see it? Yes, exactly, Kelly. It's a mortal who enters fairy, right? Or Matthew, who who encounters fairy, right? Not a fairy, but fairy, capital F, right? The place. The, The adventures of a mortal who wanders into fairy. That's exactly what this poem is about, right? Baron is a mortal. In the poem, he's a mortal. And he has wandered into fairy and what is and, and, and has the experience which he shares with many, many people over the course of history. There are lots of medieval stories about men especially who wander into forests and they see through you know, they see a vision through the trees, right? And they see uh, a fairy a dancing fairy ring, quite possibly, like Smith did in Smith of Wooten Major. Right, um, or they see, uh, um, uh, or they see a single fairy maiden, right, uh, uh, dancing or looking beautiful in some other way, right. That's totally normal. And what does he do, right? Normally he pounces, right. I mean he's drawn to it, and he like comes out, and sometimes he's being friendly, and sometimes he's being less friendly, but he's always pouncing, right? And what always happens, does anybody know what happens? What happens if you if you walk in, the, and you see a fairy ring, right? You see a ring of dancers, and you try to join them, and plunge forward into the, into the clearing, what happens? Bad things, says Corita, right? Uh, you fall asleep. If you're in the Hobbit, Kimber, that is what happens to you, right? You fall asleep, but what happened, of course, at the same time that they fall They vanish. Yes, they vanish. And Kimber, right, you, you may fall asleep and, and return decades later. That, that does happen as well, right? Um, but almost always, they, they will disappear. Just like the fairies in the Ring of Fires did in The Hobbit, right? Again, that was another example of that same motif. Mortal in fairy realm sees fairies feasting or whatever from a distant feasting, dancing something, something celebratory and fun-looking, and you you plunge in. Uh, whether your motivation is good or bad, what almost always happens is, boom, the elves go away, right? They vanish. This is the story of Baron. Right? But notice in the original version, Tolkien twists it a bit, right? Baron doesn't just pounce. He doesn't just blunder in clumsy mortal, right, into the elvish circle, uh, or into the clearing in front of the elvish maiden. Instead he is drawn into what she is doing. He sees her dancing, he hears the music, he hears the fluting of Diron, um, he sees her dancing, and he comes, and this is, I think, still, uh, some of you have remembered even more clearly than I will remind me, is this still at the point where Diron was, was, was her brother? I think it was. I think Diron and Luthien, or Tenuvio, excuse me, are brother, are brother and sister still at this point. Um, but, um, anyway, anyway, so, um, uh, he gets drawn into it. 
Right. And it's it seems it's unheeding, right? It's like unconscious. He doesn't have any control of this. In the revised version, Baron gets sent back into the more traditional mode. Forth he hastened strong and fleet and grasped. Baron's pouncing, right? Um, he is enchanted, right? Enchantment took his weary feet, we're told. Um, so he's um, inspired with strength and speed, um, but he's not taken out of himself like the other Baron was, right? Here he is just given strength and he rushes forward and he tries to grasp, but they flee. Though notice as they flee, they're still dancing, right? Tanuya doesn't stop. She can run away and still dance, right? Um, Which is what she does, and she leaves him lonely still to roam in the silent forest, listening. And that's, again, like you do when you uh, interrupt uh, a fairy. Um, Yeah. She danced upon a hillock green, whose grass unfading kissed her feet, while Diron's fingers played unseen, or his magic flute a flickering, and out he danced, unheeding fleet, in the moonlight to the hillock green. No impress found he of her feet, that fled him swiftly flickering. Um, this is, of course, after he wanders around for a while, right through that wintry image. apparently, literally, the winter, uh, as the year is changing and he's still wandering around hoping to see her again and this is what happens. So notice what's the story in the first version there, right? Um, She reappears. And we have the... hmm, uh, I'm tempted to say tenuous connection between her and the earth, right? That is... uh, he, she doesn't leave footprints behind her. Um, the grass kisses her feet. It's like she's floating above the grass, and the grass is just kissing her feet as she goes by because there are no footprints left afterwards. She is like the moonlight. There are several points in the earlier poem where Tenuvio is, is, is paralleled with the moonlight itself, right? Which I think we can see remnants of in the, uh, in the second version, right? When he's grasping at moonbeams, right? Sort of moonbeams, right? He's grasping at her, um, uh, but it's as it, he might as well be grasping at moonbeams, right? So I think we can see the later poem still playing with the whole Tenuvial moonbeam thing, right? Um, so she's like the moon. She she is like the moonlight on the grass, right? Um, both in her own beauty and 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 in the quality of her beauty and radiance, um, but even again in her in you know she is as light upon the grass as the moonbeams themselves are. And again, there he goes, right? Danced unheeding fleet, same line that we got before. And out he danced unheeding fleet. Um, and then his her feet flee him again. Um, now let's. Uh, Look at the new version. When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. There high and clear he heard her sing, and from him fell the winter's chain. No more he feared by her to spring upon the grass untroubling. What do you notice here? What do you notice? John Caldwell says, um, 
Luthien, Tenuviel, is undergoing a change too, that she seems to be becoming um, stronger. I agree. I agree. Um, she's more of a big deal. Right? I mean, she's big deal Baron, right? She's the center of the poem. I'm not saying she was a minor character in the earlier poem, but she's got a uh, uh, a higher stature, right? Um, yes, Kate, very good. She releases the spring, right? It's winter until she comes. Now, Kate, of course, as you're pointing out, she releases Baron, right? By the end of the stanza, right, by the time we get here, to, you know, to the, 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 the antepenultimate line here, and from him fell the winter's chain, right? Release from bondage, it's what it's all about. But uh, it's what Le- it's what the Lay of Lathian, we're told, means. Anyway, she releases him, right? Um... From him fell the winter's chain. So the winter's metaphorical. His heart was like, it's literal, but also metaphorical. It it literally was winter. Um, But it's the metaphorical winter of his heart that falls from him. And that that winter of his heart was like a chain from which he has been released by her when he sees her again. Right? But notice, that's at the end of the stanza. At the beginning of the stanza... We seem to be talking about legit seasons in the outside world, right? When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring. It's as if the, her, the seasons rely upon her music, right? Um, Kelly, yeah, she does seem more deeply connected to nature here. Um, who was it? Somebody was just comparing her to Goldberry. Who was that was just talking about Goldberry? Um, John, yeah, John Caldwell was talking about that. Um, yes, um, remember, like, the rainy day comes, and Tom Bombadil's like, it's Goldberry's washing day, suggesting that, uh, um, that she is the one who brings the rain, right? Um, well, Luthien is the one who brings the spring. It would, like, I guess always be winter if she didn't come. And exactly, Marielle, it's just like Persephone, right? Um, notice the parallel with the Persephone myth that comes in here as well. Um, when Persephone is down in the underworld, it is winter, right? But when she returns, spring comes, right? Yes, I do think that that parallel is a deliberate parallel here. She returns like Persephone. But it's not her mother, right? Not Ceres. Uh, here, listen to me mixing the Greek and the Latin names. Um, it's not Demeter. Uh, it's barren, right? Winter is... Uh, it's, it's, it's barren from whom winter falls here, right? Um, another play that I love in this stanza is the play on spring, right? Her song released the sudden spring. Um, and... And from him fell the winter's chain. No more he feared by her to spring upon the grass, untroubling. Right? So she releases the spring. So like what? The grass starts growing. And when winter's chain falls from him, he doesn't fear to spring in the other sense, to to leap forward. Right? Before when he leapt forward, it was a bad thing. Right? Now, as winter's chain falls from him, he doesn't fear. So Baron's spring... 
the spring of Baron's heart is paralleled to the spring of the nature around him, but of course it's also by by a by a play on words, right, connected with his leap forward to her side, right? She's brought the spring in more than one sense here, right? And that's lovely. I, 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 I just uh, um, I just love that. Um, and I think it's Arthur, I think it's him, his fear. I think it's his fear. No more he feared by her to spring. Um, I don't think that's no more was he feared by her when he sprang, right? He was afraid to spring, um, but he's not afraid anymore. Um, I think he's afraid to spring by her because look what happened the first time he sprang by her, right? He doesn't want to go through that whole winter thing again, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's him who's no... who, who his, his first reaction is fear, that sort of wintry um, fear. But he's not fearing anymore. Um, so he springs upon the grass, untroubling. Um, the play on words is really fun. Um, and, of course, I should have pointed out before, notice the change in the... It's a fairly subtle change. Notice the shape of the stanzas. Um, uh, th- this is a stanzaic poem, and it's a, it's a stanzaic poem of particular intricacy, um, which uh, I would like to, to draw your attention to for a second. Um, you will have noticed, of course, the, the, the rhyme scheme, um, or at least the fact that this has a really tight rhyme scheme. Um, look at this uh, previous stanza. Feet, loneliness, fleet, a glistening. Elfiness, feet, loneliness, listening. Right? Okay, so what do you notice here? Um, the rhyme scheme, obviously the, the, the sort of turning points of the rhyme scheme are the fourth and the eighth lines. Eight line stanzas, right? And the fourth and eighth line rhymes. Those are the C rhymes. The other six lines all share two single rhymes, right? The, 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 the eat sound and the ness sound uh, in this particular stanza. Right? So we have ABA, fleet, loneliness, feet, loneliness, fleet, Glistening. Elfiness, feet, loneliness, listening. So A B A C. B A B C. Um, it's a it's a it's it's not exactly a mirror structure, but we have the two halves of the stanza which echo each other, right? But they they they, they shift around. Um, uh, and again we keep coming back to that to that C rhyme. But of course you'll notice that it's not just the rhyme. That it also uses actual repetition of words, and not just actual repetition of words, but actual repetition of rhyming pairs. Um, feet and loneliness, and feet and loneliness don't just rhyme; they repeat, right? And that's deliberate. That's the structure of the stanza. the The rhymes at the end, the the words that form the rhymes at the end of the first two lines are repeated in line six and seven, and that happens all the way through. Notice green feet, green feet there, right? This, te- this particular uh, poetic technique, not only using rhyme, but using repeated uh, rhyming words at the beginning and end of stanzas, this is a pearlism. Um, it's like, it's not the same as, but it's like what the Pearl Poet does in the, in the Middle English poem Pearl, which Tolkien loved. He loved the poetic structure of Pearl. Um, my argument, anyway, would be that this, is a, that this is a kind of a pearlism that he's sort of imitating here. Um... Notice that that doesn't happen anymore. Um, it, the 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 uh, the rhyme scheme thing is still the same, right? Feet roam, feet glistening, 
home, feet, Rome, listening, right? Um, but uh, it's not quite as strong. We do get feet in Rome, right? Those those are those are repeated. Um, so we do still get that structure. We don't get it quite so persistently uh, in the second poem. It, it happens in every stanza, I think in every stanza, in the first poem. It doesn't happen in every stanza in the second poem. Also, it's a little bit less insistent. Um, loneliness is a bigger word to repeat. Again, that seems kind of silly, but it's super noticeable, right? Um, you can miss the fact that Rome is repeated, right? Because it's a much smaller, it's just, it's just a one-syllable repetition. Again, spring, rain, sing, chain, spring. Uh, notice that we, this stanza doesn't have the same repetition. We do get the word spring. So again, that, 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 that play on words is conspicuous in this stanza. It's part of the structure of the stanza. We get the spring the first time in line two, and then the spring the second time in line seven, connected top to bottom like that. Um, that kind of play is something that he does quite a bit. And yes, Mariel Tolkien did translate Pearl. Um, he always wanted to try his hand at doing the Pearl meter in modern English. That's why he translated Pearl. Um, anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, so again, we see not nearly as in, not nearly as insistent. Um, we, we we don't get chain. We we would expect the first line to end in chain, and it doesn't end in chain, right? So he's he's kind of loosening up the rules of his meter here a little bit. Anyway, let's keep going. More doom, Sharon. And longing filled his voice that called to Nuviel, to Nuviel, and longing sped his feet enthralled behind her wayward shimmering. She heard as echo of a spell his lonely voice that longing called to Nuviel, to Nuviel. One moment paused she glimmering. That's the original version. Um, I always have loved how to Nuviel, to Nuviel. Um, her name said twice fits perfectly into the meter of these lines. Um, and, of course, you'll notice, the, again, that rhyme scheme. Tenuviel is the B rhyme in the stanza. Um, and it's repeated, line two, line seven. What's the only word that it rhymes with? Spell, right? Because his saying, the word, then her name, Tenuviel, she hears it like the echo of a spell, right? So I, I love the, the uh, connection, how the spell is in the middle, sort of framed in the B rhymes there by her name, Tenuvio. Uh, and then you notice how a similar pattern, right? Just as we get uh, spell surrounded by Tenuvio, Tenuvio in the B rhymes, you look at the A rhymes, and we get enthralled, surrounded by called, called, right? He calls to her, and she is enthralled. Um, his feet are enthralled, right? Longing sped his feet enthralled. But that's the cool thing, right? So he's enthralled, but he's enthralling her, right? He's... He is enthralled by her, which is normal. Like, that's what always happens, right? Um, but she hears his calling to her as the echo of a spell, and one moment paused she glimmering, right? She's shimmering, often, and then she pauses, glimmering again. She's like the moonbeams. New version. Again she fled, but clear he called to Nuviel, to Nuviel. She halted by his voice enthralled and stood before him, shimmering. Her doom at last upon her fell, as in the hills the echoes called to Nuviel, to Nuviel, in the arms of Baron glimmering. Um, well, uh, 
so many things to notice here. Oh my gosh. Okay, first of all, um, the enthralled changes. In the second version, she is the one enthralled, right? He was enthralled. His lo- his his feet were enthralled uh, before, as we've seen his feet enthralled since the beginning of the poem, right? Um, She is immediately enthralled. She doesn't hear the echo of a spell, right? She halts and is enthralled by his voice. Why? How? Doom has fallen on her, right? Um, We get this external thing. This is part of a bigger story, right? She is part of a bigger story, and she now takes her part. She, 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 uh, well, embraces her role in this larger story at this moment, right? He doesn't cry her name out twice. I mean, okay, twice. He doesn't cry it out four times, <clears throat> right? And longing filled his voice that called to Nuviel, to Nuviel, his lonely voice that longing called to Nuviel, to Nuviel. Um, that repetition seems to show his own kind of desperation. We, we get that concept of echo right in the middle of the stanza, right? And we see the echo in the lines, right? The, the, the repetition of those lines that one and two, six and seven line repetition, right? Or rhyme repetition. Usually there's a kind of a turn when it shows up the second time. It's different. Here it's not different, right? There's a little bit of difference. And longing filled his voice that called compared to his lonely voice that longing called. The loneliness is new, Right? Uh, loneliness being a really important word in the poem. It was one of the repeated words in the earlier stanza that we saw. Uh, anyway, it's awesome, right? But he's calling out to her, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, twice. In the second version, he doesn't call out twice. He calls out once, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and she halts and is enthralled by his voice. And where does she hear? We still get Tenuviel, Tenuviel, twice, but where do we get it from the second time? Who's saying it the second time? The hills are saying it. Right? The land itself is echoing back to Nuviel, to Nuviel. Baron's words, right? Baron's words when he calls out to Tenuviel are reverberating in the land itself. She heard as echo of a spell. It was like a spell, but it wasn't like a spell directly on her. It wasn't like a spell that was reaching out and grabbing her. She heard it like the echo of a spell, right? Now, the echoes are still there. Right, but it's not the echo of his. It's it's uh, it's not the echo of a spell anymore. Right, but rather it's that is the 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 image of the echo in the first version shows the faintness of it. She's almost gotten away. Right, but she hears as if like an echo, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, as he's calling to her. Right, it's the weakness of his voice that is emphasized by echo of a spell. Here, the echoes show the strength of his call, right? The doom that is in his voice when he calls out to her, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and all of Beleriand reverberates with Baron crying out, Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Um, uh, oh man, oh man. Um, and, uh, and yes, good, Kelly, the, 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 the change of, of spell. Doom basically takes the place of spell. Uh, Kelly, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, and the, the, and, and yes, I agree. Spell is kind of a fleeting thing, right? A lot, sort of a fleeting and change, especially the echo of a spell, right? Um, it's like this indirect and, and potentially fleeting thing, whereas doom, yeah, yeah, it's a bigger, uh, it's a bigger deal. And of course, they, um, 
get down to business a lot quicker in the second version, right? The Doom, she's just, notice she's still only just gotten to pausing in the first version, right? In the second version, she's in his arms. She's still glimmering, right? But she's glimmering, and he's caught the moonbeams. Remember he was grasping at the moonbeams? He caught the moonbeam, right? She is glimmering now in his arms. Um, and I, I, you know, that, um, that's a huge, that's a huge deal, right? Huge deal. Um, that, uh, they, um, notice there's, it's, it's kind of potentially ominous, right? The whole thing, her doom is falling, she's enthralled, her doom is falling on her, and she's in his arms, um, that is to say, I think there's a little more suspense in a sense. Like, is this a good thing for her? Right? Is this, to what extent is her own will engaged? She's pausing, right? Because it's hard to make out, right? She hears his voice, the echo of his voice in the first version. And she can hear the second time, she can hear how lonely that voice is. Remember, that's the one difference between the first time and the second time is the loneliness. You might notice that I absolutely love the stanza structure in this first version. I mean, this version of this stanza is quite possibly my favorite stanza of poetry that Tolkien wrote in his entire career. I love this stanza. I could talk for hours about this one stanza, about every single word in this stanza. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, um, I get, the second version is still good, but I, I, I don't love the second version quite as much as the first one. But it's, I get, it's a totally different effect, right? Let's keep going. And Baron, now back to the original version. And Baron caught that elfin maid and kissed her trembling starlit eyes to Nuviel, whom love delayed in the woods of evening, morrowless. Till moonlight and till music dies shall Baron by the elfin maid dance in the starlight of her eyes in the forest singing sorrowless. Wherever grass is long and thin, and the leaves of countless years lie thick, and ancient roots wind out and in, as once they did in Doriath, shall go their white feet lilting quick, but never Dairon's music thin be heard beneath the hemlocks thick, since Beren came to Doriath. That's the end of the poem, in the first one through. Um, Let's focus on... Now, the original poem doesn't have a break. I don't believe in the lack of break. It's obviously two stanzas. You know, I, I, I... Anyway, I always treat this like two stanzas. Maybe there's some really awesome, subtle reason why he combined it into one big old double stanza, but... Um, uh, but but I... I, um, I don't see the significance. This whole structure is still the same, Right. Um, you know, made eyes, made eyes, right? Morrowless and sorrowless. Um, and then, of course, we begin a new stanza with a new line stream, you know, thin, thick, thin, thick. By the way, this is almost exactly a repetition of the first stanza of the poem. Again, pearlism, right? He's going back to the first stanza of the poem. That's just exactly what the pearl, um, the, 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 the pearl poet repeated the first, like the last line of the previous stanza, is repeated almost word for word as the first line of the next stanza, and the last 
line of the last stanza of the poem repeats the very first line in the first stanza of the poem. That's that's one of the shapes of Pearl as well. Um, so we see him doing that kind of Pearlish thing in the last stanza of the, what I shall insist on calling the last stanza, um, of uh, Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Where, again, this is uh, wherever grass is long and thin and the leaves of countless years lie thick and ancient roots wind out and in. Almost exactly a repetition of the first stanza. So it goes back to the beginning, right? There's a difference, which is that we've lost Dairon. Right, so apparently there's been a little fallout, and Dairon doesn't play for anymore. So there's some sense of loss there at the end. But notice what's the story? The story is boy gets girl, right? Which is a big, big deal that never happens. If you are immortal, wandering in fairy, and you see the mortal maiden dancing through the... And you come barging out, whether you're dancing or not dancing, whether you have inspired Elvish dancing or not, you don't catch the girl. It doesn't happen, right? Now, there are have been mortals who have had assignations with fairy women, but that was their idea, Right. Sometimes some mortals will come across fairy women who seem to have put themselves there explicitly for the purpose of having uh, an amorous relationship with the mortal who has wandered in. I'm not saying that doesn't happen because it does. But what doesn't happen is you see a fairy maiden dancing and minding her own business. You jump out. She runs away. And then you see her again. You jump out and she runs away. Notice what happened in The Hobbit when this kept happening. Not fairy maidens in that case, right? But when the first time we see the elven ring in, the, in, in Mirkwood, we, we jump in and they disappear and we do it again and they disappear. And things keep getting worse. Every time, right? The first time they just lost themselves. The second time Bilbo falls asleep. The third time Thorin falls asleep and is abducted, right? That's what tends to happen, like an escalation. You don't come any closer to catching the elves. You just get in bigger and bigger trouble as time goes on. Baron, holy cow, he catches her. And Baron caught that elfin maid. That's where our story ends, right? We do have her pausing, right? Tenuviel, whom love delayed in the woods of evening, moralless. We do emphasize the mutuality, right? She heard his voice lonely and she paused, right? She let him catch her, right? But, like, the happy ending is Baron's happy ending. And notice the emphasis, the, the sort of the primacy of that, right? Baron caught that elfin maid. Shall Baron by the elfin maid dance in the starlight of her eyes? in the forest singing sorrowless. It is him singing sorrowless in the forest, right? It's Baron that lives happily ever after in this earlier version of the story. And notice, uh, happily ever after, right? Apart from that, that, there's some loss, right? Again, we've lost Dairon's thin music, which is apparently a bad thing. Uh, we'll never hear it again since Baron came to Doriath. Again, notice it's still a Baron story, right? So there, it's not like there aren't some negative consequences to Baron coming in, but still, he has a happy ending. It's a really nice story. The end. New version. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel, O elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair, and white her arms were glimmering. 
Long was the way that fate them bore, O'er stony mountains cold and grey, Through halls of iron and darkling door, And woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, And yet at last they met once more, And long ago they passed away, In the forest singing sorrowless. All right, let's take this one stanza at a time. First, stanza number one, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, Tom. Yes, Tom. Baron is to Dairon as Yoko is to Paul. Yes, something like that. Not exactly. <laughs> well, as Yoko is to Paul. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's exactly like that, Tom. You've, you've got it. You've got it. Um, uh, okay, okay. Compare the first two stanzas. Um, what do you notice? As Baron looked into... So remember, she was in his arms, and I was pointing out how in that previous stanza we didn't have obvious evidence of mutuality. She was enthralled, and then she gets grasped like the moonbeams, which he failed to grasp before, right? As Baron looked into her eyes, within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel, O elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair, and white her arms were glimmering. Now that's really beautiful, right? Um, Tenuviel, O elven fair, um... Who's saying that, right? I mean, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, we just had, right? Um, though notice it doesn't get an exclamation point either. By any of these places, it doesn't get an exclamation point, right? But he was calling. First he calls Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Then the hills echo Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Now we get Tenuviel, O elven fair. That sounds like direct speech. That sounds like it's probably barren. Is that what he says when he sees the the trembling starlight of the skies uh, mirrored, shimmering, right? In her eyes, within the shadows of her hair. Notice the parallel here. Remember we had the moonbeam parallel before and now the shadow, her her black hair, you know, her, her, her black shadowy hair. Luthien has always had black hair. Except when she was a blonde girl named Melilot, but I don't think that was ever Luthien. And don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Um, long story. Never mind. I covered it in the Lays of Beleriand. I won't go. I won't go into Mill a lot again. But uh, anyway, always has black hair, right? So we've got her face framed with her dark hair, so that you know that her her hair li- her, like the shadows of night, and her eyes like the stars twinkling in 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 the night, right? Um, so he sees the beauty of the skies now mirrored in her face, right? Again, she was like, think about how she has been this nearly goddess figure, right? Her song, Awakening the Southern Spring, and all that kind of thing, right? Um, uh, Good, John, they embrace quicker, but we don't get any kissing in the second version. Yeah, that's good. Um, Because notice, when we got kissing, we had him kissing her starlit eyes, right? Her eyes were still connected with starlight in the original version, but what's emphasized here is him kissing her eyes. Right, um, and again, that's a, that's not a mutual kiss, right? He caught her and kisses her eyes. 
Um, now, she doesn't seem to mind, right? She waited for him. Love delayed her, right? So she loves him. Totally mutual. It's all perfectly okay. But again, the first stanza, the, the, the stanza and the first one is the story of Baron winning, right? Of Baron achieving his desire. Um, we already have her in his arms, right? But as she is in his arms, we see him beholding not just her beauty, but the sort of this, well, literally the celestial nature of her beauty, right? And then we get this Tenuviel, O Elven Fair. That's Baron speaking, probably there. Immortal maiden, elven wise, about him cast her. Now, notice that sounds like it. Like, Tenuviel, O Elven Fair, immortal maiden, elven wise. Stop. Sounds like Baron's still talking, right? Addressing her, right? Tenuviel, elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, right? But no, that's the speaker of the poem, right? Because immortal maiden, elven wise is the subject of the sentence he's just beginning. It's not no longer an O deal, right? Now this is the, uh, this is so, uh, um, so, so, so Tom Wright, we're not in the vocative case anymore. Now we're in the nominative case, Right, Tenuvio and Elven Fair would be vocative, and uh, and Maiden would be nominative. Right, it's the subject of the of the uh, of the sentence that's coming up. Um, little uh, little 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 Latin grammar uh, thrown in there for good measure. Immortal Maiden, Elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair, and white her arms were glimmering. We get the reciprocation. Right, she casts her hair about him, right? She envelops him. He's already grasped her in his in his arms, right? And now she casts her hair around him. Now this celestial, magical beauty of her face now engulfs him, right? And white, her arms were glimmering. We're not told explicitly what her arms are up to, right? But I'm going to go with embracing him back. Right. I, I mean, we ended the previous stanza with the arms of Baron glimmering, and that's kind of cool, right? Because she's she's glimmering. She's been glimmering before in this poem, and now she's glimmering in his arms, and now her arms are glimmering as they surround him. Right. So so we we had his arms. Now we have her arms. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, okay, Kelly, I like that reading. Kelly thinks that Tenuvio o Elven Fair, that the narrator of the poem, the speaker of the poem, is crying out to Tenuvio um, because he knows her significance and, and knows her fate. Um, and Kelly thinks that this that's anticipated in the fact that the next word was immortal. Um, uh, o Elven Fair, immortal maiden. Let, let us emphasize immortal, right? Because that, uh, you know, it's going to become an issue later on. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I kind of like the reading that says this is the speaker getting caught up in things, right? The speaker himself addressing Tenuviel because he too is caught up in the moment. I could buy it. I could buy it. Um, Tom likes it too. Yeah, Tom, Tom uh, Callie, Tom says you're right. You're probably right. Um, yeah. 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 That it's an apostrophe. 
<laughs> Steven says the poet has become the guy in the movie theater shouting at the characters on screen. Yeah, essentially. Essentially. Um, it's an apostrophe by the poet, by the speaker, to, uh, to Tenuvio. Okay. All right, Kelly, we'll, we'll go with that. That it's not Baron, that it's the poet. Um, yeah, Kate likes it too. The use of immortal anticipates the ending, reminding us that this love story has unique significance and indeed that tragic element. Um, notice, we don't get moralless and sorrowless, right? Moralless and sorrowless were the C rhymes of this stanza, this parallel stanza in the first version. When we described their coming together, right? Baron catching the maid and her being delayed by love, right? Um, they are... they're in the woods of evening morrowless, right? Their time together is morrowless, and they are singing sorrowless. Those two words, morrowless and sorrowless, make up a pretty happy ending, really. Um, uh, Why do I think morrowless is a happy ending? Let me tell you why. Because, of course, you might think, oh, hang on a second, that doesn't sound good. Like, if there's no tomorrow, then that means they're, like, doomed, right? They're going to die. No, that's not what moralist means. Here, again, I think that Tolkien is in invoking a medieval tradition. Um, okay. Medieval courtly love quiz. You're a good courtly lover, and you have just consummated your love affair with your beloved. Okay? You're in bed with your lady. Um... Anybody who tells you that medieval courtly lovers were all about platonic love and not interested in getting into bed with their ladies has never really read much medieval courtly love poetry. You're in bed with your lady. What's going to happen? What inevitable, inescapable, cruel, relentless, horrible thing is going to happen? Exactly, Kimber. No, Mariel, the husband doesn't usually come barging in. That I mean, that, that's been known to happen on some occasions, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> ben, better you win. Day shall come again. Exactly. The sun rises. The sun rises. And yes, Catherine, you are right to remember uh, Romeo and Juliet playing on talking about that, the, the, the sun rising. They, they're playing on that same tradition. The sun rises. And so it's, in fact, uh, there is a, it becomes a sub-genre of love poetry in the Middle Ages. The address to the dawn. And the dawn is not your friend. If you are an illicit lover, you hate the dawn, right? Because that means you've got to get out of bed and run away before you get caught, right? Um, so the inescapable, horrifying, <laughs> not horrifying maybe, but terrible uh, coming of the morrow uh, breaks the spell. Right, you're in this moment which seems like eternity, and you're translated into bliss, and then the sun rises, the next day comes, <clears throat> mundane life, and you know, the concerns of the mundane world, which may or may not Marielle include an irate husband, um, uh, intrude themselves upon uh, the bliss of your uh, amorous existence. So, if you are in the woods of evening, morrowless. That's a really, really good... They're living the dream, man. No more. The sun is never going to rise on their love. They're never going to wake up and realize that 
things have to change and that they, that's why they're sorrowless. And that's why moralless rhymes with sorrowless, right? It's, it's a fitting rhyme in that way. Um, we don't get moralless and sorrowless in this stanza, right? We get shimmering and glimmering, right? Um, playing on that moonbeam starlight thing. Right. And again, I just absolutely love. Notice we've, and I say we've gotten that before. She's been glimmering, she was glimmering and shimmering in the previous stanza. He repeats the C rhyme. One stanza to the next, shimmering and glimmering two times in a row. Right. Um, her as light, her as moonlight is the central figure of both stanzas. Right. She stood before him shimmering in the arms of Baron glimmering. He saw their mirrored shimmering and white. Her arms were glimmering. Love it. But we're not moralless and sorrowless. Are we losing morallessness and sorrowlessness? No, we just defer them. Last stanza of the original poem, we go back to the beginning, right? Back to the woodland setting with which we began the woodland, you know, the wood, sort of the fairy woodland business that we got in stanza one of the poem, the ancient roots winding out and in, the leaves of countless you know, the uh, the grass is very long and thin, the leaves of countless years lie thick, the ancient roots wind out and in as once they did in Doriath, right? The, all that roots and leaves and grass is from the first stanza, repetition of the first stanza of the poem. So we return to the fairy woods, right? The fairy woods are different but, you know, so we lost Dairon, we lost Dairon, but we gained Baron, and now Baron and Luthien are morallessly happy, so net win, right? But we return to the just, we kind of pan back to the fairy woodlands, and then we're done. Of course, we go in an utterly different direction. The final stanza of the new poem is the one which is emphatically by far the most different of all of the stanzas of this poem as it's been revised. Long was the way that fate them bore o'er stony mountains cold and gray through hill- halls of iron and darkling door and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay and yet at last they met once more and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. Yes, Ben, exactly. Now moralless is bad. Holy cow. Right, we get moralless and sorrowless again, but now it's the woods of nightshade moralless. Now we're talking about the evil dark woods where tomorrow never comes. The sun not rising is now emphatically a bad thing. It's an it's it's the the final emphatic point given to the horrible trials that they have to pass through. Right, which is the first half of that last. Long was the way that fate them bore. We're talking about how long and how dark was that way that their fate bore them. Where does their doom take them? Not to morrowless happiness in the woods, right? But through halls of iron and darkling door and woods of nightshade, morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more. And long ago they passed away in the forests singing sorrowless. Now their sorrowlessness is not because they're blissfully, permanently, completely happy as they were the first time. Now their sorrowlessness is in spite of the tragedy, in spite of their suffering. They've been separated by the sundering seas. Beren has died, but they've been reunited, and they've passed away into the forest, singing sorrowless. Beren and Luthien, having embraced their fate and each other, and having uh, 
followed the way that fate them bore, have no regrets. Despite the tragedy, despite the suffering, despite the loss of immortality, which isn't explicitly pointed to in the stanza, um, though perhaps, Kelly, as you suggested, uh, uh, anticipated by the emphasis on her immortality previously, um, they have no regrets, right? They, Their love for each other and their happiness in each other, their satisfaction in being together, transcends all of that tragedy and all of that suffering. The sorrowlessness that they have is a much different, a much more mm, mature kind of suffering. Nice. Ben says, they have conquered. <laughs> yes. Yes. They have conquered. Exactly. Um, Kimber Nelson says, to think Tolkien struggled so many times to write and rewrite their whole story and he nails it in one stanza. Um, yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. Uh, now, I gotta let you guys go because I kept you over long. But obviously, I was I, I was gonna stop in the middle of talking about the poem. But just for a second, big picture again. Remember, we saw that one pair. Let's go, let's go back. Where were we here? Blah 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 blah. Right back to the big paragraph. I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio, and I was saying like, well, okay, you know, there's still a chance that this is bar that this is borrowing. This is recycling. Right? There's still a chance that it is. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds to me completely different from the others, mostly because of that, um, mostly because of that, um, um, uh, the, the Book of Lost Tales echo, right? The Book of Lost Tales echo says to me, this is different from the Gondolin references in The Hobbit, different from the Gilgalad references in the previous chapter. But it might be, right? And then he puts in the poem. So I said, like, the poem is, should show us, right? Should give us more to go on. Notice, ironically, had he just included Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, had he just taken the old poem that he had and inserted it and revised it, you know, maybe he could have jazzed it up a little bit. I mean, many of the changes that he makes are changes to wording and phrasing and rhyme and and stuff. You know, if he had just done that but kept the story the same, if we still had the original Morrowless and Sorrowless at the end of this poem, it might be a borrowing. In fact... I almost certainly would have thought so if he had kept it that way. But he doesn't keep it that way. Notice what he, the, sh- the, the shift that he does in the story. We can talk about the shift from, from idyllic happiness to, to, to tragedy and stuff. That's all important. The, ing- you know, the, the presence of doom in the, in the second version of the poem. All, obviously, hugely important. But notice it's also connected to history. The original poem is not connected to history, Right? It's not exactly the Baron and Luthien story. I argued, by the way, at the time, that um, when I did the Lazy Balerian class, that he wrote this poem separate. This was just a separate poem. And it became the Baron and Luthien story. And this is what changed. He went, before he wrote this poem, Baron was an elf. Baron was an even mortal in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, this was an elf-elf romance in the first version of the story. Then he writes this poem, the, the original poem there on the left-hand side. And then when he rewrites the Baron and Tenuvio story, guess what? Baron is mortal now, right? Now Baron and Luth, the Baron... So this story informs the Baron and Luthien story in the mythology, not the other way around, the old one. The second one is the mythology embodied, 
right? And that last stanza, right? Instead of backing up and being like, and this all took place in the fairy woods, but Dairon doesn't sing anymore or play anymore. Now instead, we are moving, we're that push of history, right? The, 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 the ancient history of Tolkien's early mythology now pushes all the way through, right? And this is the story of Baron and Luthien, not extracted, not recycled, the very story of Baron and Luthien and the significance that it has within the larger context of his mythology. They're going to get the Silmaril. They're bringing the Silmaril back, his death, their uh, mortality together and passing away into the forest. This is the mythology. It's here. It comes in in that paragraph and it, uh, uh, it, um, it ends... You know, the, the poem absolutely solidifies it in my mind. By the end of this poem, this new poem, I don't, um, uh, I don't have any doubts at all anymore. He's no longer recycling. The time has come. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Kate, very good. Uh, Kate says, unlike the Gilgalad mention, nothing here is connected to what's going on in the Hobbit story. Yes. Uh, the Gilgalad, uh, Gilgalad's name was brought in again in just exactly the same way that those recycled things get brought in, right? A thing is happening. Like, was there a barrel on Weathertop? No. There was something that happened. There was an important historical event here. It was a big moment, right? Uh, and so we whip out a name, right, for who it was who camped here on this hill. I know, Gilgalad and Vilandil. Those are good names, right? So we have the sort of the distant echo of totally undefined and unconnected history, like we did with Gondolin, like we did with Elrond, um, like we got around the elven king of Mirkwood in The Hobbit. Yes, Kate, that's exactly why the Gilgalad reference still sounds like that to me, but you're right. The very irrelevance of the Baron and Luthien story to the plot at this time, right? Um seems to solidify that, uh, yeah, we're not just trying to, we're not just reaching for a name to attach to a thing that has come up in this story. We are now bringing in the story of Baron and Luthien from the mythology because we can, right? Um, good. Uh, Marielle Elizabeth, let's see, I have, I think, 19 slides. I got through 16. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think 19, right? I wanted to talk about a little bit more about Baron. I want to talk about the prose version. Yeah, I got to 19, right? And then some Christopher comments. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about next time. We'll start with this. We'll 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 look at that because I, I want to talk about the prose version, of course, because Trotter doesn't just do the song, right? Then he goes on and he 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 does the prose version of the story. So uh, we'll 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 pick up kind of where we left off and look at that um, next time. And. Uh, uh, and uh, and then we'll move. I promise we'll get to the Ford next time. Uh, so uh, so so do keep reading there. All right. Uh, so thanks very much. Thanks for joining me for this big moment. Right. This is this is huge. Right. That is huge. Um, and uh, and I don't know about you, but when I get to that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Strider. Uh, you know, as of course, eventually is going to be given to Strider. You know, when he utters the fateful words. But I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio, right? 
Uh, I will never look at that paragraph the same again. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Uh, And I will see you guys next week for the flight to the Ford. Bye now. Good night.